Joshua. We're in chapter 20. Our text this morning is Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. The topic, Joshua designates six cities of refuge into which a person guilty of manslaughter could run for safety. The title of our message, Feet Don't Fail Me Now. Verse 1, the Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city till he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezir in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, every time we open your word, uh, we tremble with anticipation, knowing that you desire to speak to us through it. Your word itself is alive and powerful. You also have provided us, Lord, with the person and the work of your Holy Spirit who indwells us and who is here in this place. Scripture says of him that he is our teacher. And so we expect, Lord, that this combination of the word and the spirit of God is going to bring delightful joy to our heart this morning as we understand your love and grace towards us a little bit better than we did before. We will see, Lord, this morning, of course, what a great refuge we have in you. How we can find shelter and safety and security in you, both now and forever. We want to understand how the Jews would have understood this portion of Scripture, but also how we are to understand it today in our own day and age, in our own time, as we seek to share with others this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and live our own lives in a way that is pleasing to you. And so, Lord, do all of these things and more than we could ask or even think. It's what you desire, Lord, because of your deep and endearing love for us. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, Amen. The cities of refuge give us a new illustration to help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Every Christian is a refugee who has found safety and shelter in the Lord, and every church that God has raised up is a refugee camp. It's true. 
Human beings are lost in sin, separated from their heavenly father. Romans 6.23 warns us that the consequences of sin is death. We are thus being pursued by the avenger of blood. If we do not find refuge before we die, we will be lost eternally. God has provided refuge in Jesus Christ. Whosoever will believe in him can find safety from eternal death. And they find themselves in a new city, as it were, in a community of fellow refugees called the church. Once we're safe and settled, we obviously want family and friends who are lost to find their refuge in Jesus and to come into his church. As we examine the cities of refuge mentioned in our text, we will be encouraged about how to go about explaining and maintaining the way to spiritual refuge. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, it's your joy to explain the way to spiritual refuge. And number two, it's your job to maintain the way to spiritual refuge. First of all, number one, it's your joy. Verses one through six. Now, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and then in a seven year military campaign, they subdued all of their enemies. Joshua distributed the land by lot to each tribe. There was one more order of business, and it's what we read about now in chapters 20 and 21. Two types of special cities were to be designated throughout the promised land. They were cities of refuge and cities for the Levites who had no inheritance of their own as a tribe. And so cities of refuge and priestly cities. We're reading about the first type of cities, the cities of refuge. Let's look again in verses 1 and 2. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. A little bit of background for the city of refuge. In Genesis 9, 6, God laid down a basic rule that anyone who shed blood by murder should pay for their crime with their own blood. He said, Whoever shed, sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God... He made man. The sanctity of human life is affirmed by requiring the highest price if a life is unjustly taken by murder. Biblically speaking, life begins at conception and it continues until natural death. Capital punishment is mandated for the crime of murder. Now, God also explained very carefully in the other passages uh, that there was to be a distinction made between premeditated murder and what we today might call manslaughter, the unpremeditated killing of another person. Listen to what God said through Moses in Exodus chapter 21. This is verses 12 through 14. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. During the 40 years that the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness and during the seven years of the military conquest that we've covered in the book of Joshua so far, the, Canaan, uh, the Israelites rather camped around the tabernacle, their place of worship, a slayer could seek refuge in the tabernacle at the altar until his case could be decided. Possibly you've seen diagrams of the camp of Israel. Uh, it, basically, there's the tabernacle in the middle, and then the various tribes camped north, south, east, and west around it. 
Now, there were several million people. This was a large encampment, but you'd never be very far from the center, from the tabernacle. And so if you're out in the field uh, and you're working the axe and the axe head comes off and you hear a, a thud and you look back and you've just killed David Brooks, who made fun of you, uh, <laughs> you could run to the tabernacle to the altar before Carla caught you and you'd be safe there. You'd be safe there until your case was heard. Uh, and so that's, that's the deal. Now that the tribes had received their land, they would be scattered away from the tabernacle. Some of them would live on the other side of the Jordan River, as a matter of fact. And so it is impractical to make someone flee for refuge to the tabernacle. There's a chance they wouldn't make it. They needed accessible places of refuge scattered throughout the land, and that's what these cities provided. Scholars estimate no one would have, a journey, uh, would have had a journey of more than about 30 miles from anywhere in the land to a designated city of refuge. So if you killed somebody in Lemoore, uh, your closest refuge would be somewhere in Visalia. Uh, and so maybe a little bit far for us on foot, uh, but uh, you could get there. There was a reasonable uh, distance, and, and all of the cities were about 30 miles uh, from anywhere in the Holy Land. And so it was practical that you could escape. It says in verse 3, the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and they shall be your refuge from the, uh, the avenger of blood. There was no police force in Israel. There were no prisons in Israel. Uh, it was up to each family to avenge murders. The nearest blood relative to the deceased was charged with the responsibility of executing the murderer. This person's own emotions and passion and anger at the loss of a family member might cloud their judgment. They might end up avenging a death by indiscriminately killing someone who wasn't guilty of murder, only manslaughter. If you watch any courtroom drama, you see this all the time. There's always somebody who objects to the verdict. Uh, so, you know, if there's a, a not guilty verdict, uh, somebody's going to be mad and upset. And, and uh, you know, uh, if, if there's a guilty verdict, some other people are going to be. And so our emotions get in the way oftentimes. And so you had to have a way of controlling the avenging of these killings. Uh, I, I was looking at vendettas and revenge killings and things like that. It's part of my heritage, of course. And uh, there was a time in Sicily where about 600,000 people were killed as a result of vendettas from family to family. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's a wonder that we survived. Uh, uh, Sicilians. But anyway, uh, so that's the idea. You just get upset and you think, oh, well, you killed David, so I'm going to kill you. And it might have been an accident, so they needed to have this system in place. Sounds like a weird system to us, doesn't it? No prisons, no police force. Uh, the family has to avenge that. Well, some of you are saying, no, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, you've got that sign on your door, you know, forget the dog protected by Smith and Wesson, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, this this is, you know, uh, kind of a law and order place, and I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, I don't have a gun, but I know my neighbors do, uh, and you know I'm sure they let me borrow it in a pinch. But anyway, uh, you know, so so that's great. And you look at this; it was kind of weird. But I don't know that our system of of uh, 
incarceration and rehabilitation is doing much better. I mean, it's just it, societies look at things differently. And in this tribal society, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a land area about the size of the state of Maryland is about the size of the Holy Land at that time. Uh, this is what worked uh, and it seemed to work very well. At least it kept their taxes down when it came to uh, certain, certain things. Anyway, so this is what was going on. Uh, so you would uh, run to this city of refuge after you'd slain someone, and then there would be an investigation whether it was murder or manslaughter. And so in verse 4, when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them, and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. The elders of the city of refuge would determine by investigation whether the incident was murder or manslaughter. If it was murder, the slayer would be delivered to the avenger of blood for the carrying out of the sentence of capital punishment. If it was manslaughter, the slayer would not be delivered to the avenger of blood. He would, however, be required to live in that city of refuge if he wanted to remain safe. If he went out of the city of refuge, then the avenger of blood could kill him and not be charged with a crime. In verse 6, he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days... Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. And so the slayer must live there as a sort of sentence for manslaughter until the death of the high priest. It was still manslaughter uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it was still serious, even as it is in our own culture and all cultures. And so this was a sort of sentence. He had to stay in that city to remain safe, couldn't go home. From a legal standpoint, the high priest's lifespan provided a sort of statute of limitations on the sentence, although it, was, it could be a short time or a very long time. Now, the Jews would understand that in addition to the legal issues that this solved, the cities of refuge were also a spiritual illustration to them of God's protection and their relationship with the Lord. You know, a lot of times we look at the Old Testament and we say, oh, this was a typology or a lesson or an illustration. Well, the Jews understood that too. They knew that it was literal and physical, but they also understood that these were illustrations. For example, in the Psalms, Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the Jewish mind would be drawn to the cities of refuge and they would see how that worked out physically was also true spiritually. The Psalms mention at least 15 times that God is our refuge. Cities of refuge were what the writer of the book of Hebrews had in mind when he said of our relationship with Jesus, and I quote, we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And so it's not to a city of refuge that we run, not to Avenel uh, or Kalinga uh, or some of these outlying areas, but it's to Jesus Christ. And so we thus are not only justified in seeing the cities of refuge as a type of Jesus, we're actually encouraged and instructed to do so. So let's draw a few obvious but simple comparisons between Jesus and these cities. One, the cities were placed in such a way as to make them easily accessible. It's the same way for anyone seeking Jesus. He is easily accessible by grace through faith. 
to the cities, uh, excuse me, the gates of the cities of refuge were always opened and never locked. With Jesus, you don't need to discover some secret spiritual insight to be saved. There are no religious locks and keys. You can come anytime, just as you are, and enter. And so, uh, easily accessible, always open. Uh, this is why we reject religion uh, and legalism. Religion is man's attempt to get to God, and there, there are always layer upon layer of things you must do and perform in order to uh, be acceptable to God. And in most religions, you're never quite sure if you're going to make it or not. Uh, there's always a doubt in your mind, uh, and, and you, you know, you'll have to die, and usually there's a place of punishment after you die, uh, or you get sent back as a flea or something like that, you know, because of your karma. But it, it's always kind of sketchy as to whether or not you're going to make it because you're never quite good enough. Among Christians, a lot of Christian groups like to add things to the simplicity of the gospel and the easy accessibility to salvation. Uh, they add some things that seem biblical, like baptism or communion, in terms of how many times you take communion or what your mode of baptism was or were you baptized. And they say that, yes, you can be saved by grace through faith plus baptism uh, in a certain mode. And if you're not baptized a certain way, you're not really going to make it. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic tradition, a lot of people don't realize this who are in or have come out of that tradition even, um, hardcore teaching of the Roman Catholic uh, uh, doctrine is that if you do not receive Holy Communion weekly, you are not saved. It's a basic tenet of uh, the Catholic Church. Of course, a lot of times Catholics don't worry that much about it because they believe that there's a purgatory where they can work that off. And so they do their yard work on Sunday and plan on suffering in purgatory for several thousand years to work that off. And, I, you know, it, it, that's, that's a legalism when you add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we want to keep Jesus accessible to people and let them know that all they need to do is believe that he died for their sins, rose from the dead, and uh, that they are sinners in need of salvation. The third thing we see about the cities of refuge is that they provided shelter and sustenance for the slayer as long as he lived there. In Jesus, we have a sufficient Savior who provides every spiritual blessing in abundance as we abide in him. And that's why we're so guarded about people who want to bring things into the church or add things to the gospel on another level, saying that, yes, you have Jesus, you have prayer, and you have the Bible, you have the community of believers, but you also need these modern discoveries of uh, psychology and psychotherapy and such because, you know, you can't really be a whole and complete person without them. And you can't unless we have some of these kind of crazy uh, mystical methods that, that they used to use, you know, in some cultures. And there's all of this kind of a tossed salad approach, they call it, where you just put everything in together and, and you do that. Well, we want to portray Jesus as... Uh, a sufficient Savior, and ties into a fourth thing, the only place of safety and security. The only place of safety and security was the city of refuge. That was the only place. And just as uh, in, in terms of spiritual salvation, Jesus is the only way. 
He isn't one of many ways. He isn't a Western way or an American way of, of getting to God. He is the way for the world, for every culture of all time. And then finally, that ties into the last thing. The cities of refuge were open not only to Jews, but to anyone in the land, to the stranger and the foreigner in the land. God's offer of salvation in Jesus is to whosoever will believe. It is a universal offer for the universal problem of sin. Lives all around yours are being torn apart by spiritual forces. Marriages are failing. Children and young adults are falling into terrible habits. Your family and friends desperately need to find safety and shelter in this world. It is our joy to, to explain to them that there is shelter for them in the Lord and in his church. It's another way of seeing what the gospel is all about. When we share the gospel, you're telling someone that there is a refuge for the slayer that is coming after them. Eventually, that slayer, if they die in their sins, will put them into hell. Along the way, because the world is the way it is, their marriage is going to be destroyed. Their children are going to be ripped apart. Everything that, that they thought was going to work isn't going to work. And they're going to come to that crisis point. And, and wish there was some place to flee. And we have the joy of just showing them Jesus Christ, of sharing with them the good news that Jesus is God come in human flesh, that he died on the cross in my place, in their place, as a substitute, rose from the dead, guaranteeing eternal life, and now is offering that to any and all who will believe on that simple message a place where they will find refuge and be safe eternally and where they can experience life more abundantly. Now, there's something uh, uh, more after we explain this way of refuge, and I'm saying that it's your job to maintain the way to spiritual refuge. First of all, let's look at the cities again in verses 7 through 9. The chapter gives the names and locations of the original six cities. We'll skip over verse 7 and 8, which are just the cities themselves, and read in verse 9. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. As mentioned earlier, they were scattered throughout the land, three on each side of the Jordan River. You would be safe in the city of refuge, provided you got there. And so it was very important that you get there. The Jews took access to these cities very seriously. Over the years, they developed many ordinances referring to the maintaining of these cities. Among the things you can read in Jewish sources outside of the Bible are the following. The roads leading to a city of refuge were to be clearly designated by signs at crossroads. The signs were marked miklot, which meant refuge. And so there had to be a sign. Uh, we have street signs today, same thing. If there was a crossroad and you had some doubt about where the city of refuge was, there was a clearly marked sign that said miklot this way. Uh, the roads leading to a city of refuge were to be made twice the normal width of other roads, and they were to be cleared of debris. That way you didn't get stuck behind a slow-moving uh, hay baler, uh, you know, like you do around here. That was one thing I still am not quite used to in, in living in the Central Valley. Uh, when I was in Southern California, 
uh, all road construction was done by you know, ninjas in the middle of the night. You know, you never saw anything unless the freeways and roadways were always wide open uh, until about one in the morning. And from one to four in the morning, then the crews would come out and do that kind of stuff. And if you had an agricultural vehicle, you got sighted if you if you drove it on the road without special permits and stuff. Now, I'm all for this. I love the way, you know, life happens here. And uh, until I get behind a hay baler or something on the way to Visalia. And it's like, not only am I being showered with agricultural debris, uh, you know, and more, uh, I, I just, you know, you can't, you know, and stuff. And you're just not quite sure. And I don't know how many times I've almost been killed, you know, by uh, bad judgment, you know, at doing that kind of thing. So uh, same way here, you, you know, whatever was on those roads, the road was twice as wide so that you didn't have to dodge herds of sheep and goats and things like that. You could, you could get through. Bridges had to be built over every ravine the road would come to so that a slayer did not have the hazard of descending into a ravine and then ascending. I was watching Planet Earth the other day, a snippet of that, uh, and uh, there was this caribou herd, and these wolves were following the herd, and sure enough, a, a you know a smaller caribou got separated, and the chase was on. This lone wolf was chasing the caribou, uh, and the, the narrator said that these chases could go on for five miles, five miles. Uh, of course, if you're the caribou, you've got a real stake in that, you know, and so you're going to go get it, stake. But uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, Anyway, so they're running, and, and the caribou is a little bit faster than the wolf. The wolf, of course, is determined because he's hungry. And so they're chasing each other, and the wolf isn't really gaining ground. And the narrator says that, that what, what determines usually the outcome of that chase is who stumbles. One of those beasts is going to stumble in a little rock or something like that. And if it's the caribou, then it's done. You know, then he doesn't have time to really recover from be, being tripped. And, of course, like every five minutes in that special, the caribou stumbles and he is devoured and I change the channels to a ball game. But uh, anyway, uh, so and that's the deal. So you're running. I mean, you could literally be running for your life from an avenger of blood, you know, as, as I was earlier in our illustration. And you don't have time to stumble and fall going down a ravine or rappelling up you know, up or down or something like that. And so you've got to get there. And so the roads uh, had to be bridged. The roads were inspected and repaired every spring after heavy rains to make sure that they were still passable. And the cities must be well stocked with supplies to provide for any slayers who were forced to stay possibly for the rest of their life. Uh, and so they, you know, they, it wasn't that you just showed up. You had to live there if you were found innocent of murder but guilty of manslaughter, and, and the, that city provided for you. Uh, and in an agricultural society where you were a farmer or a rancher and you had to leave everything behind, uh, this was also very significant. And so the Jews in analyzing this requirement that they provide these cities of refuge, they came up with these and many other requirements uh, in order to maintain this important system. When I say to us, it's your job to maintain the way to spiritual refuge, I mean that we have the blessed privilege of keeping both our personal Christian lives and our corporate church life in order so that no one is hindered as they come seeking refuge. And this is really all I want to get across this morning. It's 
that we have the blessed privilege of keeping both our personal Christian lives and our corporate church life in order so that no one is hindered as they come seeking spiritual refuge in Jesus Christ. For example, looking at those cities again, we said that they were clearly marked by signs, especially at any crossroad, so that a person fleeing would know which way to go. God has placed all of us around a select group of people. Some of them will come to a significant crossroad in their life, maybe several, while you know them. Whether they're family or friends or co-worker or however you would uh, determine them, they are going to come to a crossroad or crossroads. And when they do, they're going to need direction. The direction they get from people in the world, very different from the spiritual direction that they really need. They need to know which way to flee when they're looking at that pathway. As a Christian, you are the signpost to your family and friends. You are the one that is going to point the way to the Lord. And so it'd be a fun thing to ask yourself, if my life was a sign, what would it say? I got on a website the other day. The Internet's dangerous, you know, because there's so many places you can go. But there's a website that has all the possible traffic signs that you will encounter. There's some wacky traffic signs, by the way. Uh, But anyway, to stay in in context here, um, what would your life say if it were a traffic sign? The sign I hate the most when I'm driving anywhere is detour. I can never follow detour signs for some reason. To me, it seems like there's one major detour sign, which I could have figured out anyway because the road is blown up, you know, and so you can't go that way. Detour this way, and then, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but then you're on your own. There, you know, in my way of thinking, there should be a few more detour signs telling you how to go. Uh, and so that's why whenever I can, I ignore detour signs because I know where I'm going. But anyway, it just it's just crazy. Uh, and so... Let's say you're a Christian. You don't want when somebody needs direction for them to look at you and see your life saying detour because you've decided to become backslidden or you've put your Christian life on hold for a while while you pursue other things or for whatever reason, you're just not ready to point people to the Lord. You want your life to say something like one way. That's a great sign. People come to the crossroad and they say, which way should I go? And you say, there's one way. There's the way I'm going. It's the way of the cross. It's towards Jesus Christ. Remember some of you who've been Christians for a long time or some of you who are just nostalgic? Do you, ever, do you remember Ben Born Again? Who remembers Ben Born Again? A few of you. Ben Born Again was a cartoon character drawn by Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship. He had a whole series of cartoon strips and, and different booklets dur- during the Jesus days, uh, the Jesus movement days, and the billboards. In fact, the first bumper sticker on my car, my 79 Honda Prelude, great car, by the way, uh, was uh, it said, ready or not, Jesus is coming. Not original with me, unfortunately. Ready or not, Jesus is coming. And Ben born again in the corner with his finger like, one way. Uh, and so it was cool, you know, and stuff. And so that's a great thing. You know, that, that's what I want my life to say. Uh, and, and so I, I, that's why I say it's your job to maintain your personal life so that when a person needs that direction, they can get it from you. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a burden. It's a blessing to be ready. Uh, it's good to think about our church as a 
city of refuge. The churches can be looked at as a community of people because that's what we are. We're people communing with one another in community, whether we're a small group or the whole group. And so our church is a city of refuge. And so let's make some comparisons there. The gates to the cities of refuge were always open. Uh, I thought about for a minute, maybe we should just leave our church unlocked. No, I didn't. Uh, That's not what it means, obviously. It means that we should show hospitality and love to those seeking refuge. It means we are a place of grace and mercy, always open and ready to share the Lord. Cities of refuge needed to be well stocked in case a fugitive showed up. Our church needs to be well stocked. And it needs to be well stocked, first of all, with people who are maintaining their posts. If you lived in a city of refuge... You never knew when a fugitive would show up. You could have a, a time when, you know, you had several in one day, perhaps. Or you might go months without anybody uh, coming to your city of refuge. But whether there was a big rush of fugitives or a steady stream of them, or whether it was rare, you still had to be just as ready every day. The leaders had to be ready. It started with them because they would have to convene and decide how to deal with this case and how to investigate it and how to protect that individual. And so the leaders had to be ready. And then there were lots of other people. Just think of the amount of people that it would take to really run this kind of a program, uh, stocking the shelves in a, in a perishable society so, and keeping houses ready for people so that uh, things could happen. And so it was a very, very important kind of a thing. Uh, You never knew when a fugitive was going to arrive and want to drop, uh, you know, their life in your hands. And so you had to be ready. In our church, you never know when a fugitive is going to arrive and maybe want to drop a child off in the children's ministry or get an order of biscuits and gravy in the cafe. Sounds like a little thing, but it's not. Maybe they want to come forward for prayer. Anything any of us do should be done with the thought that today is the day someone will arrive desperate and in need of Jesus. And just my being here might make all the difference in the world to them. Earlier this morning, uh, just before the service started, I was I sent a text message out to everybody on my Twitter page. Uh, So let that be a lesson to you. No, anyway, Twitter is so much fun. You can get into it, twitter.com. Anyway, uh, I sent out a message. I was thinking, you know, hey, just getting ready to go out. And it dawned on me, we've been here 23 years, uh, 52 weeks in a year, and I did some calculations. It's like Sunday number 1,252 or something like that. Now, the truth is, when you've done 1,200 Sunday mornings, either at the Y or, or you know, last five years here, there's a lot of repetition, uh, there's a lot of, you know, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And, and not every Sunday is there a big influx of fugitives, of spiritual fugitives, of people you don't see. Uh, now, we do get a lot of newcomers every week here, but, but you know what I mean. It, it's like it's usually business as usual. The problem with business as usual is that we have a tendency to get lackadaisical. We slack off. We, we come late. We leave early. We're not prepared. You know, and and the, the problem with that is, though we may not get a fugitive every week or for several weeks or several months, one of those days we are going to get a fugitive or two. And we have to be ready when that fugitive comes. 
as ready as possible because I'm not saying that that person can't get saved if we're not ready or that God isn't bigger than us. But it takes a lot for a person to, to, you know, get courage and, and to be directed to a place of worship and to think, you know, what's that going to be like? What am I going to find there? Especially in our society and culture where most of the time you've been to churches where you just get beat up or they just want something from you not to give you something or you have this idea of what churches are like. And so we've got to be ready. The leaders have got to be ready and everyone else involved has to be ready to show that person the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that's really a joyful thing. To me, this revolutionizes my whole attitude about being together with Christians. Uh, you, you know, that one of these days, and maybe more often than not, if I'm really ready, God is going to bring people who are going to have their, their lives changed for eternity. They're going to enter, move from a Christless to a Christ-filled eternity, and we're going to have some small portion in that. Our church should be well-stocked with spiritual resources. We should be singing and making melody in our hearts. Our conversations, often within earshot, should be seasoned with grace. We should want to keep distractions to a minimum and to maximize the teaching of God's Word. We stock our church also by giving sacrificially of our time and our talent and our treasure. It should be well-stocked by our generosity in all of those areas. You don't need dozens of examples. Just catch on to this general principle that at any moment during a service when we're together or during the week when you are out on assignment scattered throughout this area, a fugitive, a co-worker, a friend, a relative may need to find their way to Jesus Christ as his or her refuge. It's your blessed job to both explain and to maintain the way to refuge. Now, one more thing as we close. The requirement that a slayer must live in the city of refuge until the death of the current high priest seems a little odd because uh, one slayer might have to live in a city for years or for the rest of their life, whereas someone else might just have a very short time. In fact, if you're thinking about killing somebody and you think you can get away with it, you might just wait until the high priest is dying. Run, kill the guy, get to the city and say, I'm going to be free in about five minutes. Of course, he could make a miraculous recovery. Remember, there's a Twilight Zone episode. You don't mind this, will you? It really terrified me. It totally terrified me as a young boy. Uh, Twilight Zone where this guy, he made a deal with the devil. By the way, deals with the devil, they always go bad. Did you notice that? I don't know what it is about deals with the devil, but they always have a way of going bad. And so he made a deal with the devil that not, that he would live forever. Nothing could kill him. Uh, and so he went out and he started doing a bunch of crazy stuff, jumping off of buildings, you know, standing in front of trains and nothing could kill him. And he finally got bored with all of that. And so he thought, you know, the only thing he hadn't done, I don't know how it all worked out emotionally, but the only thing he hadn't done was was uh, uh, experienced the electric chair. And so he killed somebody indiscriminately just so he could go to the electric chair. And then at, at the end, his lawyer, they're taking him to the electric chair and his lawyer runs and he goes, great news. I got us. I got you life in prison. And I thought, I thought, oh, no, if I ever kill anybody. No, I didn't think that. But anyway, uh, so, you know, it, it's that kind of a thing. So it's really kind of a weird thing. Uh, but the Jews would understand, OK, you know, there is a statute of limitations. And I think the Jews had a greater sense that God was sovereign over events. 
uh, you know, they had received their land by lot. They cast lots and they trusted that God chose for them the best land. And I think they would look at this and say, okay, God knows when the high, who the high priest is going to be and when he's going to die. And so whether somebody has to spend decades in a city of refuge or just days, we have to trust that to the Lord and to his justice. But they would also understand, as I said earlier, that this was a spiritual type. But I think we understand it better because we read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He has become our great high priest. And the book of Hebrews says he lives forever. Of course, we know that. As a high priest, he also lives forever. So we come to Jesus as, uh, in our, as our refuge, and then we find he's our high priest, so we never have to leave Jesus. We're not looking to get back to our home, back to normal. We've escaped from that. He is our home. This is what's normal, and we will live with him forever and ever. We are home, safe and secure, sustained now spiritually and forever with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for our morning uh, and for these types that you give us. I don't know about others, Lord, but they help me to put difficult spiritual insights into perspective. And so, Lord, if I can begin to recognize my life uh, as something that uh, is to explain to others uh, the way to Jesus Christ and to maintain that way by not stumbling them or doing anything or saying anything that would be a hindrance to them, whether it's just something I do in private that gets me off track and brings sin into my life so I'm not really ready, or whether it's something I do publicly, Lord, in a moment of selfishness or uh, something that, that would cause uh, people to not see you the way you really are. Lord, I want all of that uh, to be judged at the cross so that uh, in a moment of crisis, a person could see my life saying one way, Jesus Christ. And I pray for our church, Lord, that we would be a place of refuge and that you would bring many, many refugees in. Those that are at a terrible crossroad in their life uh, because of some awful thing that has happened to them personally. Maybe they brought it on themselves. Maybe it happened to them. That doesn't really matter. And we shouldn't judge them for that, Lord. We want to be that place of refuge where they see Jesus high and lifted up, first on the cross, then in heaven the one who died for them but rose again that they might live and that you would do a work in their hearts even as you've done in our hearts. Refresh and encourage us, Lord, that this Christian life is a real thing, that it affects people for time and for eternity. And we don't really have time to be goofing around in it, to be selfish, to be uh, anything other than others-oriented. We want to be that person and that people. You do it, Lord, in our midst by the direction and ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Go ahead and stand. Still need a few volunteers for Triple H, so fill out the uh, flyer or uh, and get it back to us or email us, and we'll get the schedule out first part of this week so everybody knows what they're doing. So if you've volunteered, we know about it. We just don't do the schedule until the last week. If you're entering one of the contests, I've been told to tell you that the ta there will be some tables set up uh, near the entry to the church uh, where you bring your chili or salsa or pie, uh, and then it'll be judged uh, after that. And so, um, th so that's that. That'll be fun. Ignite Lemoore tonight. No Ignite next Sunday night uh, because Sunday night, the 26th, that's the Harvest Hallelujah happening. 
pray for me. I got to be up at oh dark thirty tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm uh, cooking breakfast for the Lamore Police Department. Uh, if you're a volunteer in policing, you're welcome to come, both of you. And uh, no, there are if you. Uh, it's it's our famous. It's my annual quarterly biscuits and gravy that I do for them. I'm supposed to do it quarterly. I'd like to, but I only get to do it annually because we're busy. But uh, I'll be making biscuits and gravy for the cops tomorrow morning. So if you're up at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, pray for me. If you're on my text messaging list, I'll send something through so that you can pray for me. No? Okay. You guys are really hard, really hard to please this morning, but that's okay. I love you. Uh, and I, I can sense that you love me also. It's just, you know, I guess it's... Was it Tampa Bay losing that bothers everybody? It just must be tough. May God bless you and keep you. I have nothing else to say in Jesus' name. Amen.